Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slim Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo. Um, right then, we're not joining us this week, unfortunately, due to some timing. It's been a crazy week because Sydney Film Festival is starting, but never fear, we'll be joining us next week for some more Sydney Film Festival film festival coverage. Farad's corporate overlords demanded his his full attention at the only time available to us to make this episode. We're, we're not corporate overlords. Guys. We're like, no, we're on community radio. <laughs> sort of Sydney Educational Radio and yeah that's what it stands for and yeah. because 2SCR have been covering Sydney Film Festival for many 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 years more than we have though we do enjoy it this is the time of year again Sydney Film Festival has gone online we're going to be talking and starts today we're going to be talking a little bit more about the Sydney Film Festival things happening about town and resistance a film at a screening spot of the Jewish International Film Festival today with this special Q&A by Jesse Eisenberg later tonight but first we are talking about one film we've picked from the Sydney Film Festival lineup that we'd like to highlight which is called Our Law it is directed by Australian filmmaker Cornell Ozzies and Cornell joins us now so first of all Our Law can you tell us what is it what is it all about? Well, it's about the first Indigenous-run police station in uh, WA. And it's about uh, a new way of policing in remote community. And you filmed this uh, quite, it was quite recently, you put all the whole production together. Yeah, yeah. The, the last August 2019 is when we finished principal uh, filming and then we went into the edit and this year we were releasing it. How did you hear about this station and get involved in wanting to make a film about it? So uh, Sam Fields and Taryn Lafar, the producers, uh, they heard whispers of this first Indigenous police station and um, so they did a little bit more research and reached out to WA Police, uh, Wendy and Revis and the Warakuna community. And then once they sort of started formulating the story, they brought me on to direct. So um, that's how I got involved in the project. From a logistical standpoint, how did you go about sending this all up? Because we see throughout the film, you travel uh, quite long distances, but also some areas of WA which are relatively remote. Well, the, the remoteness is, is crazy. So you're say 300 kilometers west of Uluru and it's so it's on the border of Northern Territory and WA but also South Australia so it's that bottom corner uh, where all states meet it's just on this side on the WA border and um, to film in a place like that it's um, you know you got to travel six hours on a dirt road if you're coming from Northern Territory to go to Warakuna and um, I guess the budget and stuff didn't allow us to be there for a long time. So we had to do things like uh, we went out to the community, we without filming. So we went, did our face to face, met all the key stakeholders, um, wanted to see what they wanted to get out of the story. So we had an idea what we wanted to do, but we involved the community, Wendy Revis and the WA police. And we tried to, find the story that they also wanted to tell and marry the two together so that their voices were the, the dominant voices. So the com community and Wendy and Revis. So we didn't want it just to be a, a WA police PR kind of thing. We wanted to show all the elements that are making it work. So, you know, the community, Wendy and Revis involvement and 
the steps that the police did to make this police station happen. How do you feel about the film opening up now, given the current context in the world as well as in Australia? Um, the timing is, is uh, it's crazy. No one could have predicted this when we were filming last year that this was going to happen, but I feel it's quite timely because mm -hmm. right now the world's looking at all the problems that are happening with police uh, brutality and, and the way the police system is structured we're presenting a, a possible solution, you know? So um, just showing that the, there are ways that uh, you can end that broken relationship. And I think that's what the doco um, is about, I guess, mending yeah. that relationship. It, it struck me when I was watching it that it's of course, particularly relevant to people who are minorities in a country and in Australia, definitely to the indigenous experience. But I also thought the way that Wendy and Revis in trying to bridge that gap approach policing seemed like a model for how all policing should be done. Well, the, the, the qualities that both Wendy and Revis have, um, if you look at them, they're simple. It's respect, understanding of cultural differences, and communication and mm. everyone has that, that toolkit. And if you use those, you're gonna, you're gonna have a better outcome in any situation. So I guess what you're seeing in the world is um, uh, police officers aren't given um, an understanding of historical or context of why, you know, minorities are angry towards police. So, I mean, you see it in America and it's it's quite embarrassing when you've got our leaders in Australia saying, "Oh, geez, we're a lucky country. It's not happening. Over, it's uh, it's happening over there." They're not realizing, mm -hmm. they're not seeing the truth of what's really happening, and you know the parallels that's happening over there, there and here. I mean, the Royal Commission to the Death and Black Custody was 1991, and you think you know after that there would have been changes made to, you know, stop what is happening currently. But I mean, since 91, there's 437 deaths in custody. Mm. Um, so you, it makes you wonder, like, are they learning from their mistakes or is it just doesn't really matter to them? Right. And element to that point that was raised prominently in the documentary was the role of language in police community engagement. And I found that fascinating. I was hoping you could discuss a little about this dimension of the documentary. So... Part of the documentary that also intrigued us was the, the use of language. And um, 2019 was UNESCO's Year of the Indigenous Language, which was very appropriate, you know, for us to um, explore. Um, and it's just Wendy and Revis, they're not, they're not of the land. And out in Warakuna, English is like a second or third language to some people because they, they speak more than one language out there in, in, in the land. So to police effectively, they needed tools to communicate effectively. So that meant they had to learn the language of the land. And for them learning it, it also showed a sign of respect to the people of Warakuna because if you're taking the time out to learn somebody's language, that's, that's a clear sign of respect because to learn that language is very hard. And just to attempt it, it just shows that they're, they're invested in doing better in the community. 
Was it difficult to get members of the community outside of the police to be involved with the documentary? Like, did they know that you came in with good intentions or was it hard to communicate that? So our first visit to community, that's all it was about. It was about um, presenting us who we were, connecting with people, letting them understand what kind of people we are and what kind of message we wanted to get out of it, but also give them the chance to be involved. Like we gave them complete editorial control because during the process when we were editing, we would we'd send a, a, um, a version or a rough cut or a final cut to the community to get their feedback. We were never going to ever launch the, the, the documentary without uh, Warakuna community being um, happy with it, Wendy and Revis being happy with it, and WA Police happy. So we had to um, make sure all the key stakeholders were looked after and it was the story was done justly on for all parties. It, it seems that the police officers involved had a much more active role in this documentary than typical subjects where they played more, much more of a function. In what ways uh, during prior to production, even following production, do you feel they helped inform and further the ethos and certainly delivery of the finished product? Well, their openness towards us. I mean, they shared a lot of their you know, story to us. Wendy's got a very dark history, you know, and that you'd think that'd be a, a very touchy subject, but she was very forthcoming and was willing to go there for us. Indeed. So I think those relationships we built with Wendy and Revis when we first uh, made contact with them allowed us to delve deeper into that kind of backstory, which gave you a more human uh, view of the officers you know, they're not just a badge, you know, there's a lot of stuff that went on before they got to where they are. So it shows you, you know, Wendy's character and the strength of her character, you know, turning her life around from where she was to now. I mean, she, she's won the, uh, the Australian Police Medal Award, which is the highest award you could get as a police officer. And so she, um, I think it was like two weeks before we went out to film, she had, she found out she won that award. Right. And so, you know, it speaks volumes to the kind of person she is that she's making changes in the community, but she's also respected in the police community as well. So, you know, it's the highest award you can mm. achieve as a police officer. Yeah. I thought delving into her background really added a lot in terms of understanding why this station is working the way it is, what she's so trying open. to do. Yeah. To moving to some of the non-thematic elements of the film, the technical, from the technical perspective, some of the shots you got of um, the day landscape, the rest of the night. Yeah, beautiful. That, that was beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you went about that and how you got that stunning footage? So it, it was trial and error for, you know, the time lapse at night. And um, we had uh, three different types of cameras out there. You know, obviously we had a drone to get the aerial landscape stuff. We had an EVA, we shot on an EVA, we shot on a Canon ES, ESO, EOSR um, camera. Um, we had GoPros attached to, you know, the, the, the car and the vehicles. And yeah, so we, we used every tool we could at our disposal that we could get out there. I mean, we were limited to how much we could bring out there because, um, uh, I was flown in from Sydney, Sam and Taryn was flown in from 
Perth. So already we were limited to our baggage on the plane. So the, the amount of gear that we could bring out there was very limited, but we, we, you know, talked it through what we, what kind of shots we wanted and yeah, it, it turned out really well. Uh, um, so Sam, who's the producer is also our cinematographer. So he, he, um, he didn't, uh, you know, the main camera, but I also got on a second camera. So I, I was, you know, shots as well. So we were all, you know, had different hats on in the project because there was only three of us out there. It was yeah. Sam, Taryn and myself. Oh, sorry. I lie. Four. And um, Ashley Charlton, our sound recorders. So very small crew. So we had to, you know, pack light and we had to really think about what we wanted and, you know, brought the gear to reflect that. It's great quality for production of, of, the, of the people for people, incredible stuff. Yeah. It looks beautiful. And the community itself is, is just so visually striking. Oh, it was no, amazing out there. Yeah. The community was pretty dry for two years. It hadn't rained out there. And the last two days of our filming out there, that it decided to rain. So, it, you know, the landscape even changed even more. So, you know, colors came out. It was, it was amazing. Would you consider delving into possibly this community or maybe just issues of policing and Aboriginal communities more broadly in, in a longer format in the future? So there was a lot of, lot of stuff to cram into the short time we had. Because originally it was, it was a half hour episode for television. So we edited it in such a way. But of course, you can't put all that into half an hour. So there was a lot that we left out. Uh, luckily, we've been given some funding to explore our law as a series. So um, we're in, in the process of researching um, more initiatives and programs that are like this. So we'll follow Wendy a bit more in her new career and also Revis, but then we'll also explore others. So it's in the research phase, but yeah, it's great that we are getting the opportunity to explore it further beyond just that half hour doco. Mm. Fantastic. And also we're lucky to have, speaking of it being a half hour, um, NITV is showing it after the film festival. So we'll get our free to air premiere on NITV. Nice. I'm keen to see the rest of the series actually. Good luck with the production. Thank you. Now, it's the Sydney Film Festival. It started today, and this is the world premiere of the film. For those looking to seek it out, that's the only thing people should. How can they go about it? Where, they, where can they see your movie? So, Sydney Film Festival is uh, virtual screenings this year because of COVID and the situation. So, you go onto the Sydney Film Festival website, and then basically you purchase a ticket for a virtual screening and um, we're in the category for best Australian documentary so that's where you'll find us on the website so we're in the running for best Australian documentary which I'm so excited about. Good luck. Our law is streaming via the Sydney Film Festival you can catch it at sff.org.au and a festival pass. Cornell thank you so much for your film and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our chat with Cornell, one of the flicks we really hope you do seek out during the Sydney Film Festival. There's a lot they've got going this year. Some of the SBS On Demand flicks, which are films you may have seen at Sydney Film Festival before. Others are being a spotlight again. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed Outlaw. We haven't seen any of the other new SFF films, but we're hoping to catch a bunch of them before next week so that we can give you a rundown. It wouldn't be Film Fight Club if we weren't covering Sydney Film Festival. So we have to tune into that. Yeah, it's the Sydney Film Festival. It's how we met. It's what we've been, we love covering it every year. It takes over our lives for a few weeks and it may as well take it's over the our center, lives. Yeah, it's the center of the Film Fight Club calendar. And even if we can't do it in the way we'd like to, I think as it for most industries and most situations, most everyone's in right now, it's all about making the most of what you've got. So it's running June 10th to 21st. You can catch it up online. You can get a full festival pass for 200 or you can get a strand pass or a pass for individual films. There's a lot of fun stuff playing, a lot of uh, director and talks and Q&As happening ancillary to the regular film screening, something you can plan your time around. In addition to the Sydney Film Festival running, the Jewish International Film Festival, JIF, and as through, you can see this through the Ritz at home, are uh, having the Australian premiere of Resistance. Went online at 9 a.m. this morning. And at 9.30 tonight, I'll be joining. There's going to be a Q&A with the film star, Jesse Eisenberg. We're going to be talking about Resistance a little bit more in a few minutes. In addition, things that are happening around town, the Cinema International Film Festival has gone online, as has Move in Bed, which has gone to Move in Car. I shouldn't say it's gone online, but it's in these now dedicated drive-in theater. You can check it out down at Moore Park. The St. Kilda Film Festival has gone online from Friday, so you can catch that. Static Vision, the film collective are going to their 11th week of online screenings with a a horror-esque lineup happening on Friday night, as is MonsterFest, which has the dedicated weekly screening at 9 p.m. I just have to say, it's incredible how Static Vision have kept the momentum going. So cheers to Connor and Felix, a screening every single week, basically, of the the quarantine period. Amazing. with a lot of prominent directors and actors, yeah. um, Colin Bateman, Felix Hubble, full credit to you, and the crew behind um, Static Vision and the Trash Collective who run Trash Night. Um, note to note, last week they raised um, over $1,000 to help with uh, NGOs working on supporting members of the uh, different communities in the US, including members of the African-American community, to support bail funds and legal advocacy. And I know they're doing another fundraiser as part of their... Um, screening this week, which is Friday at 6 p.m. So more than more than good films, there's good reasons to tune into Static Vision. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival, which won their virtual, uh, the Melbourne Virtual Online Time Out Award for their screening a couple of weeks ago, has is having a special celebratory drinks on Saturday night. Kino Sydney, the Sydney Film Collective, are having their third online screening. It's the 150th Kino, and sp- films for that are due on Friday night. You've heard Chris and I talk about it different times um the city underground film festival have had some news today they're going online we're going to be talking about that in a few minutes but first we thought we'd talk a bit about resistance the film that has australian premiere through the jewish international film festival online and as i said before is screening with jesse eisenberg later tonight it is starring eisenberg and it is a little known story about Marceau Marceau, the famous french comedian and actor who uh well better known for his creative work and his hilarious cameo in um, High Anxiety, the was it a silent movie that the Mel Brooks film where he had the one speaking role, Pure Gold, um, was a French resistance fighter during the Second World War. And this covers that era of history. He's a pretty famous dude. I, I don't know that he's best known for the silent, silent uh, movie bit. No, but it is a funny best, bit. I, I don't think he's best known for a silent movie, but one of his, uh, one of his great appearances. Yeah. He's most hilarious. 
Um, now, uh, we, I wanted to review this film in full. My apologies. It only went online at 9 a.m. We we're pre-recording this for the Wednesday night. So I haven't seen, I've seen more than half film. I haven't seen the entirety of the film. So I'll give that caveat prior to reviewing, but I was keen to see, see it before the Jesse Eisenberg interview. This is, this is a film that covers a quite sad, very, and and relatively covered part of history, but still there are any number of stories, true stories and fictional stories that continue, that people continue to shine a light on for good reason. I feel this, many fail often to draw the distinction between films that are World War II genre films and films that are of the Shoah or genre or films that focus specifically on the Holocaust. Like it's an important distinction to draw. This is predominantly a film about uh, a it's a predominantly a Holocaust drama, but it also deals with um, a, not a, a fairly typical narrative of resistance fighting during the Second World War. It's uh, somewhat in the vein of Defiance, which takes a similar balance. I I appreciate these narratives. I think they're important. Moreover, someone in my background, I think we see quite a few. And there really are something. There's something, however, very distinct about this film, which unfortunately doesn't cover for the most part. And it is very distinct to Maso Maso's. So much, excuse me, narrative. The idea that humor and pantomime and performance can help alleviate fear or stress or otherwise mock villains and, and the function that plays in broader narratives in times of trauma is very essential. Uh, we saw Mel Brooks use th these sorts of ideas to great effect films like The Producers. It's something they explore to some extent in this film. I wish they'd explored it a little bit more rather than going into what is uh well, this type of war narrative that which is still very important that many people have seen many times before another thing i really liked about this is that and again it's very particular to the lead and eisenberg he's such a great actor he does nail a lot of the, the particular peculiarities of Marceau's performance style we've seen him play um seemingly and outwardly semi um you know some uh figures before like who, who at least are outwardly neurotic in some way um we saw this in uh the social network we saw this in cafe society and here he's subverting what he would typically use for comedy to more dramatic effect it deal this film deals with the idea that something that you can't fathom or articulate because it's so horrific and so traumatic and so intense can be never whether or something conversely beautiful like love can be expressed silently through action this is something that we see dramatically teased out in some scenes in the film and i wish they'd pursue that a little bit more but as i see it the film is going in the direction of action-driven cinema as likewise defines did in its second and third act um i am liking this film i do think you could have cut a fair bit out of it at two hours straight but it's a narrative that I knew about, but am glad to have the opportunity to explore in a little more detail. And I look forward, I'm happy to uh, qualify any of those criticisms, having seen the full feature um, come next week, where we'll be discussing also a little bit more about the Sydney Film Festival, that is Resistance. And you can screen the film now or through its at home, as you can a number of other features. And the Jesse Eisenberg Q&A is happening at 9.30 tonight. Um, speaking of films and festival news happening around town, this is the Underground Film Festival, one of our very favorites today announced that unfortunately, they, due to uncertainty, due to, uh, in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, typically they have a huge event over at the Factory Theatre where they fill out the Factory Theatre for four days straight are going online. They'll be screening shorts and some of their 
uh, traditional strands, including the Take 48 film competition, which is happening again. Um, this is simply good for a couple of reasons because it's a festival that's still a little bit far out. It's supposed to take, pl- it is taking place now online September 10 through 13 with the Inhumans conference happening on September 11th. And we're just in a period of uncertainty. In a lot of countries, they're talking about cinemas opening in July now, which would mean that Christopher Nolan is right. Tenet will open in July, but we'll see. If that is to be the case and we don't have another bad wave of COVID infections in Australia, then I'll say it's really a shame for Sydney Underground Film Festival, but they're doing their best. They're doing their best. Um, We're glad we will be able to have access to it. And it's something you should seek out because while we do love the very particular vibe and in the context of the film festival scene in Australia, unique vibe that Sydney Film Underground Film Festival proffers, we're glad that we will have access to it in uh, some form. And I'll say that the short film selections are usually, well, I should say the short films are always a highlight of Sydney Underground Film Festival. They, well, it's some of the, um, yeah, the, the short film lineups are way better than what you see at Sydney a lot of the time. I find it's some of the best short film curation I've seen. Not all of them are that good, but there's always an interesting selection and there's a few amazing ones scattered in without fail. So, um, On the matter of cinemas reopening, uh, I just got a press release from Universal and I'm on the matter of releases upcoming and I'm sure there's going to be more news as we tease out where the cinemas can reopen and when in New South Wales. Certainly there are op- opening come June 23rd in Victoria. Um, the NT is a different matter where things are uh, where things are, can proceed a little more freely now, and the types of films that are the, the screen films are going to get screened. Baby Teeth, The King of Staten Island, certainly Tenant is a matter of ongoing speculation. We've voiced before we don't think it's going to happen immediately, and I don't think uh, that, at least my views on that haven't really changed. It seems like a big financial gamble. But yeah, come July, and whether people will be comfortable, whether certain types of films will be able to going to the cinema, I mean, whether the types of films will be able to open the scale of films on the plethora that will be able to be screened. Will there be more retrospectives? Yeah. Um, One festival that is not going ahead, but insisted on having some, on making a mark in some way anyway, is the Cannes Film Festival. They uh, did this, they were, were very reluctant to delay their festival. And in the end, when it was, decided that it could not go ahead in a time frame um, that w- you know would allow it to be the Cannes Film Festival and fill its space in, in the calendar. They decided to announce a Cannes official selection anyway, despite the fact that these films are not showing at any Cannes Film Festival online or... They're uh, ours, guys. We chose these yeah. ones. We want to make sure you know that these were Cannes movies. Exactly. Our brand on them. So whatever plays it, it was ours first. Yeah, it was ours. We, we, we got it. Exactly. It's totally an ego thing from the, the granddaddy of all film festivals and, and don't you forget it. But um, it's it probably... was a French dispatch from Cannes, ironic given the title of the I'm most looking forward to. Right. Yeah. The French dispatch by Wes Anderson. I suppose they decided that film is so French it had to have the Cannes label, even if there's no Cannes, rather than premiering it at Venice or, or somewhere else. Yeah. A bunch of the films here may not have actually ended up in the real selection because it's movies that... Uh, sacrificing premiering at a big festival like Venice. A lot of the time, I think it's films that are obligated to release in 2020 because of some financial reason, contracts, production credits, etc. And this was the best option. Um, there are definitely some films that would have made the Khan selection, I, I think, in there. The, the new Mai Wen film, because for some reason they love Mai Wen. She's all right. Uh, the French Dispatch, of course, 
Summer 85 by Francois Ozon. I've heard some big buzz around. Apparently it's one of his really on form films and people are saying it, it could potentially have an impact similar to Call Me By Your Name. We'll see. I don't know if people are just saying that because it's an 80s summer gay coming of age movie, but we'll see. Yeah, there's Ammonite, which is a romance with Cisha Romanen and Kate Winslet from Francis Lee, who directed God's Own Country. There's three hours of a Steve McQueen directed episodes of an omnibus show. Khan is too good for Netflix, but apparently not too good to show TV. Yeah, a new Thomas Vinterberg film. Probably we would have seen the Naomi Kawase film in there. She's another Khan director like Mai Wen, where no matter what she makes, she'll find her way into the lineup. There's an omnibus film from seven Hong Kong directors. It was going to be called Eight and a Half, but John Woo dropped out. Damn it. And now it, instead it's called Septum Story of Hong Kong. Uh, I, I feel like that's going to be perceived in a very different way being released in this climate to how it was probably pitched as a tribute to Hong Kong action cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lens eyes widen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the debut film from Viggo Mortensen called Falling. There's a, a bunch of filler films in here, I think, and surely some really good ones in here as well. No one knows when a lot of these movies are even going to screen. No, we don't. But, um, but, uh, it, it's so up in the air at the moment, but we will cover them. Hopefully some of them screen at Sydney Film Festival next year with the big fat Khan logo stamped on the front. Or even we'll if Sydney see. Film Festival decide to do more sporadic screenings or one-off screens throughout the year, we'll be there for them. Yeah, yeah. I'd love that other festivals too so yeah we, let us know what you want us to fight about we'll be back next week with Bharat Nehru talking all things to the film festival and whatever you pick if you want to pick a fight with us and yeah find us on our social media as well which is Chris yeah it's facebook.com slash film fight club or twitter.com slash film fight club au please message us give us a suggestion next week we're probably going to focus on SFF but beyond that we're all yours so this has been Glenn Falkenstein and Chris Evans. This is be John Bavaratneru. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Have a safe night. Enjoy movies. Enjoy SFF. And good night.